وصحبه ومن اهتم بسنته الى يوم الدين. All praise due to Allah and may Allah's teaching blessings in the last prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic of today's khutbah was the divine wish of Allah, that is, what Allah wishes for us, what Allah has willed for us, the divine wish. And the Imam began the presentation of the khutbah by raising the question that we should ask in this regard. What do you want? What is it that we want? But before looking at what it is that we want, he suggested that it is essential for us to be clear on who we are, why we are here, who is our Lord. All these type of questions need to be answered before we can effectively look into the question what it is we want. Because if we're not clear on the purpose of our creation, on who our Lord is, then it's very easy for us to desire things which in fact will be of no benefit to us in both this life or the next. So the Imam suggested that it was first important for us to build our link with Allah, to establish our connection with Allah, knowing clearly who Allah is, knowing clearly what our responsibilities are. And having understood these, then we can seek to fulfill what it is that we want out of this life. And in order to help us to find what we need or what we should want, he mentioned what it is that Allah wishes from us. <coughs> and what he has mentioned is all from the Qur'an. And any of us who are reading the Qur'an should come across these verses and should reflect on them. From the beginning of the Qur'an to the end, we have Allah saying that He wishes for mankind this, He wants from you that, He wishes this or that. And it's essential for us to read the Qur'an regularly, as we spoke about <coughs> coming out of Ramadan. Coming out of Ramadan, we spoke about reading the Qur'an regularly. This was one of the lessons or things that we should have gained from Ramadan. In reading the Qur'an regularly, we should concentrate on what it is Allah wishes for us. But in any case, the Imam mentioned one of the verses which is often quoted with regards to Allah's wish for man. يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرُ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْمُسْرُ But Allah wishes for us ease and He does not wish for us difficulty. Allah wishes for us ease 
That is, that the religion that he has described for us is not a difficult religion. It is not in order to create burdens for us, to put certain burdens on our back, to make life difficult for us. This is not the purpose of ordaining the religion of Islam for us. The purpose of ordaining that religion is to make life easier for us. And if we grasp the essence of the religion, if we understand both the letter and the spirit, then the ease that is in the religion becomes clear to us. But if we have not grasped the inner message, the spirit of the rituals that are required of us, then the religion will appear to us to be a burden. Getting up in the early morning to make fajr, <coughs> fasting, giving of our wealth, all of these things, for somebody who is not conscious or not understanding of what is behind these things, it appears to be a series of burdens. And this is why also you have <coughs> some non-Muslims, when Islam is presented to them, they say, it's too difficult, too many rules, regulations. You know, you can't drink, you can't party anymore, you shouldn't be listening to music, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that, you know. Seems like so many restrictions, you know, you find people, no, yes, I, I like the idea of this one God, but you know, too many restrictions. I still want to uh, have a good time. So Islam seems to take away the good times. You know, you can't have the good times anymore. But in fact, the really good times only come for those who are true believers who are applying the law of God in their lives. Those are those who truly attain the good times in this life and the next which is, of course, even more important. So, it is very important for us, since Allah has told us that He wishes for us ease and not difficulty. And Prophet Muhammad has said, Ad-Dinu Yusuf, the religion is ease. Yassiru la tu'asiru, make things easy for people, you know, with regards to the religion. Don't make it difficult. There are so many statements of the Prophet Muhammad in this regard emphasizing the ease, that means that for us, any of us who has not grasped the ease that is really inside of this religion of Islam, it means that they need to study. Study more carefully. Ask questions. Sit with people who know, whatever. Get that clarity. So that the religion will become a way of life for us, a living faith that motivates us in the way that it should motivate us towards righteousness and not be just a series of acts that we do which have no effect really on our personalities, our character, whether it's moral or whatever. We're just doing these rituals, you know, because our parents did it, because God said to do it. Why He said to do it, I don't really know, but, you know, I, I better do it because if I want to get paradise, I better do it. But, you know, we're adding it in, in this kind of a mechanical fashion where if we do these rituals, we'll go to paradise. But the rituals themselves, if they are not with the spirit that is behind the rituals, 
then these rituals would not take us anywhere but to hell. I mean, it may sound strange to say that a person who practices the rituals of Islam will go to hell. But in fact, that is so. One who just practices the ritual without grasping the spirit of it and living in accordance with that spirit is going to hell. So very essential. This is very essential for us. Because such a person who has not grasped that spirit, who is just going through the motions, this now is a person who most likely is in a state of what we call nifaq or hypocrisy. Where he does the ritual, but he is in fact a disbeliever because his actions demonstrate it all the time. He cheats, he lies, he steals, you know, he's doing all these things, yet he's praying five times a day. This is a hypocrite. This is not a believer. As not to say a believer never cheats, lies, steals. He may do these things. But this doesn't become his way. This is not his way of life. This is not the general description of him. You know, he makes mistakes on occasion. Weaknesses, he falls here or there. He turns back to Allah in repentance. But this is not his general description. We know so and so. He's a Muslim. He's known as a liar. He's a known liar. He's a known cheat. You know, he brings people over here to work and, and all the people who work for him, you know, complain about him. They sign contracts in, in the Philippines which would promise them certain salaries. They came here and this man has changed and given them new contracts and said, either you accept this or go back home. You know, they already spent, you know, one year's salary trying to buy this visa to come here to work and the man puts this in front of them. What do they do? They have no choice. And this man is praying five times a day. What good is that prayer? So, it is essential for us that we don't fall into that state of hypocrisy that we do understand what is the ease that Allah has for us in this religion of Islam. Let us find out the core principles of Islam and apply them to our lives so that the ritual that we have that have been uh, outlined for us, ordained for us, you know, will have proper meaning and have effect on us. And Allah also explained that He wishes that we would understand the sunnah of those who came before us. You know, in His explaining of different things in the Quran, He wishes for us to, to reflect on those who came before. The different nations, the people, their personalities, Pharaoh, nations, the Ad, the Samud, all these people that are mentioned in the Quran are mentioned in order for us to understand how Allah operates with man. What it is that He wishes from man. And what happens to man when he turns away from the wish of Allah. Allah mentions elsewhere in the Quran, Yurid Allah and Yukhafifa Ankum wa khanaqa al-insan da'ifa. That Allah wishes that things would be made lighter for us. We find in the religion, for example, when we're traveling, the regular prayers that we have to pray, those that are made up of four units are shortened down to two. And we're allowed to pray the Zuhur and Asr, the two midday prayers together 
and the night prayers, Mother of Anisha, we can also join and pray together. This is concessions which Allah has given us, taking into account our needs, our weaknesses, the difficulties that we may face at different times, though we are required to fast in Ramadan when we are traveling, we are excused from fasting. So we see constantly throughout the religion where Allah has made uh, different concessions and made certain ease for us, reducing what is essentially good for us and easy for us also, reducing it even more, making it even lighter. So that there is no excuse for not turning to Allah. So the Imam asked the question, what do we want when Allah has chosen for us the Sharia, the correct way? The Sharia which has in it guidance and has in it salvation. Guidance in this life, I know for myself when I became Muslim, this is one of the things that I really felt made a, you know, a major difference, a major change for me. The guidance was there, meaning that the, the, the confusion and the complexities of choices that I had before Islam, where I'm not sure what I'm doing, why I'm doing, or should I really do this, or shouldn't I do this, you know, uh, that confusion which existed before was lifted completely. Because with Islam, I now knew what was the path that I was to go on. It became clear for me. So choices became much easier. And if I, if I made a choice based on that understanding and things didn't go the way I wanted them to, I assumed that that choice, though I uh, made it and I wished from it certain results, that the results that I wished were not best for me. As Allah says in the Quran, you know, you may wish a thing which is harmful for you. And you may dislike a thing which is good for you. Allah knows and we don't know. So this gave me a sense of contentment. Life, the complexities of life were reduced enormously. It's like that light in the darkness. You know, Allah refers constantly in the Quran to taking the believers from a state of darkness into light. Now the way is clear. Satan takes people from light where the way was clear into darkness. The opposite. You know, when people start to call for freedom, you know, you have Muslims, people coming out of Muslim countries, you know, who are talking about, uh, you know, freedom in, the, in this uh, unrestricted sense. You know, women's liberation and, you know, all these different types of freedoms which people are now due to the effects of, of Western propaganda, etc. in the Muslim world, you find Muslims liberating themselves from Islam. This is Satan taking them from guidance, from light, which was Islam, to darkness. So if Allah has provided for us the light in the darkness, what can we wish? Do we wish the darkness? Do we wish the light? If Allah has provided us the light, then that's what we should wish for. That's, that's what we should seek. That's what we should want out of this life. And this is why in Surah Al-Fatiha, which we are reciting daily, some 17 times every day, 
after Allah teaches us in that uh, standard format of prayer, He's taught us there how do we worship God? How do we approach Allah? You know, after thanking Him and praising Him, recognizing, you know, that He will judge us in this life, and recognizing that He is the only one worthy of worship, and He is the only one who will fulfill our needs. After all that, He tells us, what should we seek? إِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ Show us the straight path. The guide. That is the most important thing in this life. That is the Sharia. That is the wish of Allah for man. The most important thing for us to ask for in this life. And with it comes salvation. This is the most important thing in religion. People look at religion. Will we get salvation out of this religion? This is what Christianity comes. Salvation. You accept Jesus as your personal Savior. God became man, sacrificed himself for your sins. You will attain salvation. You will accept it. Doesn't matter what you do after that. But once you believe this, you will accept it. God became a man. You know, God, the ever-living, the one who doesn't die, became a being who died. I mean, this is, to accept that, I mean, really requires shutting off your brain. But once you accept that, they promise you salvation. And everybody wants salvation. So people say, okay, we shut the brain off and accept the salvation. It's an easy way. Easy to be a Christian. Whereas Islam says, no, salvation comes with the acceptance of God as our Lord. In all of the senses. Linked with doing righteous deeds doing what He wishes for us. Because acceptance of Allah means submission of our, of our will to the will of Allah. That's what acceptance of Allah means. It doesn't mean the theoretical understanding as Satan had. You know, as philosophers may have. The theoretical proofs which prove that God exists. This is a part of the of the process. Not a necessary part, but a part which may be necessary for some people to be able to philosophically and logically understand why God must exist. But if we accept that God exists, for that to become faith, we have to live in accordance with the will of God. Then it becomes faith and not just knowledge. So, if Allah has provided this Sharia for us, with its guidance and salvation, what then can we wish and want from this life that will make sense? And the Imam went on to point out some things from history, the history of Muslims. Wherein the wish of Allah we see fulfilled. The example given, first example, was that of the Battle of Ahzab, 
or the clan. When the Prophet Muhammad and his companions were in Medina, you know, all of the various Arabian clans got together for a last ditch attempt to finish him off. And those who were hypocrites sought to avoid being involved in this battle by saying with regards to it that Allah's promise and that of the Prophet was a deception. It was only fooling people. But Allah exposed their true intentions that they were actually betrayers of the faith and that in fact they were hypocrites and he quoted the verse in which Allah said who can protect man if Allah wishes evil for a man or good who can stop it and he gave examples of that of Prophet Musa, Moses when Pharaoh had gathered all the things which should have given him success in destroying Musa and his people and the message however Allah provided a way the opening of the Red Sea and allowing Musa and his companions to pass through and destroying Pharaoh and he also gave the example of Prophet Ibrahim Abraham wherein he destroyed the idols of the people in an attempt to let them reflect on what it was they were actually worshipping and help them to turn back and recognize God as their true Lord however their response was to find him out and to burn him set him on fire as a sacrifice in defense of their Lord their Lord the false God however again Allah intervened commanded the fire to be cool from Prophet Ibrahim and he came out unaffected a sign and a miracle to further convince the people that he was a messenger of God that what they were doing was false however you know as Allah says in the Quran there are people who in their disbelief the disbelief has reached their so, so deeply into their hearts that if the dead came out of the grave and spoke to them told them and Allah sent down from the from the heavens you know revelation in a bag they wouldn't believe just would not praise them and he also gave the example of Prophet Musa's incident with Khidr a wise man who Allah had, to whom Allah had uh, revealed certain things and who traveled with Musa for a period of time to teach him to enlighten him to certain things of how Allah works within man how things may appear one way to us on the outside may be evil or maybe not beneficial and yet Allah takes from it good and benefit 
And the example uh, was uh, from the travels with, with uh, Khidr was the last when he built the wall after they had come into a town and the people were very disrespectful and, and um, unfriendly to them that on their way out of the town Khidr came across a wall that was falling down and he rebuilt it and Musa suggested to him you know maybe you can take some money for it you know don't do it as a favor look how they treated us and Khidr went on to explain to him why he did it he was not doing it as a favor to the people of the town he was doing it because Allah had revealed that below this wall was a treasure which if the wall fell down the treasure would have been exposed and the treasure belonged to two orphans who were children of a very righteous individual who lived in that town and if the, the treasure were exposed then the people of the town would have stolen it and they wouldn't have benefited from it so he reset the wall for that purpose So as he emphasized, without Allah's mercy and forgiveness, we would all be lost in this life. And it is essential for us to make a distinction when we talk about the wish or the will of Allah between what we call his legal wish, al-irada al-shari'iyya. That is, what he wishes for us with regards to religion, how we live our life. He wishes for us Islam, but He has given us a free will to choose it or not. At the same time, we have what, is, what could be called His creational wish or Al-Irada Al-Kawniya that is, he has set into motion certain forces, cause and effect chains in this life that man cannot escape. You jump up, you fall down. No matter how much you wish, you can't fly. Indeed, there are things which are set that we are subject to. We call it the laws of nature. We also see within our lives there are certain incidents which take place which are way beyond our control we have a wish we have a desire but whether we are able to fulfill that wish and desire is in accordance with the wish of Allah so ultimately what takes place in this life is in accordance with the wish of Allah so what is best is it better for us to have a wish which is not that of the wish of Allah and there is no guarantee that we will be able to fulfill that wish anyway or is it better to have a wish which is in accordance with the wish of Allah and we will be rewarded for our attempts to fulfill that wish whether we succeed or we don't this is the question And this is what we should reflect on. Making our wish in accordance 
with the wish of Allah. Because when it is in accordance, then this life for us becomes a total reward. We are blessed in all aspects. As the Prophet said, the life of the believer is a wondrous thing. Because when good comes to him, he's thankful to Allah. It doesn't make him, you know, oppressive. He's got a lot of money now, he's got control. So, you know, he changes. He becomes corrupt. No, he's thankful to Allah. And he gives the right of man in it. And more. So he's blessed by it. And when he faces times of difficulty, he's patient. He knows it's by the will of Allah. And there is good in it for him. For him to take whatever lessons there is in it. Because no evil befalls us except as a result of the wrongs that we have done. However, Allah will cause certain things to happen to us in our lives. Not merely as a punishment for the wrongs that we have done, but as a means of enlightening us, encouraging us to reflect and to come back to the right. This is His mercy. That we don't receive mere punishment, pure punishment for what wrong we have done in this life. So, in summary, it is important for us to decide what we want out of this life. But to be able to make that decision effectively, we have to know who Allah is, what it is Allah wants from us, so that we can intelligently make decisions and set wishes, hopes and desires which will benefit us not only in this life but also in the next and also very important for us to seek to understand the spirit of Islam the spirit which is behind the various commandments which have been ordained for us which will help us to realize the beauty and the ease which lies in this religion of Allah and thereby make us more appreciative and more able to live Islam as a faith not based merely on rituals but a faith which is alive in our hearts and manifest in our actions. Uh, inshallah, if anybody would like to make any comments uh, based on the khutbah concerning the topic uh, or they would like to raise any questions, inshallah. about it. Last week we spoke briefly 
on the first part of the Shahada, our declaration of faith, bearing witness that there is no God but Allah, and what it meant. And I mentioned that in this part of the khutbah, or after this, the khutbah this week, I would speak briefly on something of what is meant by the second part of the shahada, وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ We bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. When Allah has ordained for us to make this declaration, accepting the Prophet Muhammad as a messenger of Allah, this requirement is not one which is, again, a theoretical acceptance, a piece of knowledge that is written in a book, but a part of the faith and practice of Islam. Because Allah has said in the Quran, May Rasul Fakad Allah. Whoever obeys the messenger has obeyed Allah. So the acceptance of the messenger is not just recognizing that he was a messenger of Allah, but accepting his commandments, whatever he has asked us to do. We accept it as we accept the commandments that Allah has given us in the Qur'an. We don't separate the two. That's why the declaration of faith has two parts to it. Both have to be there. You cannot accept Allah and reject the messenger. Because what we know of Allah is was brought by that messenger of Allah. So it is that declaration of faith is actually a declaration of allegiance. A commitment to following the commandments of the Prophet Muhammad throughout our life. As Allah said in the Quran, مَا أَتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا نَحَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُ Whatever the Prophet has given you, take it. Follow it, obey it. And whatever he has prohibited of you, leave it. And he mentioned also that it is not befitting for a believing man or woman. If Allah and His Messenger have decided something for us, that we have in it any choice. There is no choice. If the will and wish of Allah and His Messenger has been made clear to us, there should be no choice. If we are true believers, there should remain no choice in our hearts. Should we do this or not? No. Finish. We accept their decision. And if we disagree on anything, we should take it back to Allah and the Messenger. So our declaration of faith in the Messenger is, a, is a, an acceptance or confirmation that there is no separation between the message and the Messenger. The Quran and the Prophet the Quran and the Sunnah, these are the foundations of Islam. The 
Quran and the Sunnah. Accepting Allah is accepting the Quran, the word of Allah. Accepting the Prophet is accepting his Sunnah, his way. The Prophet Muhammad was the way. He is the way. So, it is essential for us as Muslims, once we have made that commitment to find out what is the way. It's not enough for us to say, well, we're Muslim, fine, and we bumble through life. Not knowing what was the sunnah, what is the way of the Prophet It is essential for us. As we read from the Quran, we should also read from the sunnah. The books of Hadith, Sahih Bukhari, Muslim, you know, the authentic collections which contain the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, the final Messenger of Allah, Muhammad We need to expose ourselves, those of us who have the opportunity should read regularly from the Sunnah to get a good understanding of that way and to make sure that we don't just pass through this life with customs and practices of our people, what our family did, what the people of our area did. We don't know, was it what the Prophet Muhammad did? Did he approve this or not? No, that's just what my parents did. I'm just living my life in accordance. No. Because if that were right, then we should have no objection to a person being a Hindu or a Christian. They are only doing what their parents, what their family, what their society did. But Allah has given us an intelligence to be able to reflect on what is going on around us, to question and to seek knowledge to find out what is in fact correct. For us, the way is short and easy. It is the Sunnah. So it is essential for us to find out read, to expose ourselves, to free ourselves of the slavery of custom and habit and find that light, that guidance which is provided by Allah in the Quran and through His Prophet Muhammad in the Sunnah. So the declaration of faith in Allah and in His Messenger is a commitment to obedience to submission to the way of Allah and His Messenger. When we accept that wholeheartedly, then Islam becomes a reality. And I should mention one verse which uh, the Imam spoke about towards the end of the khutbah, which is worth reflecting on when Allah said with regards to the believers that we should not take the disbelievers as our close dear friends over the disbelievers. So he just mentioned that verse in passing after mentioning all these other things. So because our wish and our desire and our want may be to take the disbelievers as our close dear friends. 
because of our job circumstances or family circumstances or whatever. But what Allah wishes for us is that we do not do that. It doesn't mean that you cannot be friendly to disbelievers. But to take them as our close, dear friends over the believers, this is deadly. Deadly. Why? Because the disbelievers will never be satisfied until we return to disbelief, to whatever they're doing. You know, as Allah said in the Quran, that the Jews and the Christians will never be satisfied until you return back to their way. So though they may appear friendly to you, and, but in their heart, they are not happy with you. They are not happy with you until you leave, give up that way. Give up Islam and become as them. And that is going from light into darkness. So it is very important for us to have as our close and dear friends confidence, the one to whom we reveal our innermost desires, etc., as being the believers. These are people who are concerned about your welfare truly. They wish for you to remain in the light. Their advice for you will be in accordance with the will and wish of Allah. So this is what we need to have around us as much as possible to help us because we all have times of weaknesses in this life. And we need to have as our close and dear friends those who, re who will remind us of Allah, who will remind us of our obligation to Allah. And if we don't have that, as I said, as Allah said, those others will affect us, will bring us down. It may not be <coughs> quick, it may be a gradual process. But as we say in the West, if you lie with a dog, you're going to get up with fleas. And all those little insects, the dog is always scratching himself. You know, if you lie down with him, some of them are going to jump from his body onto yours. You've got to get up scratching it. You're going to be affected. If you are not in a position of affecting, that is, you're giving dawah. You have these uh, non-Muslims to whom you are friendly, who you treat kindly, because of Allah's commandment. Allah has given you a duty to carry the message to them. They are part of Allah's creation. They are your brothers in mankind, in humanity. So you carry that message. You are affecting. If you are not doing that, then they are affecting. They are affecting you. There is no neutral, you know, like, it's okay, you know, they are not affecting me. I can't get any message across to them, but they are not having any effect on me. No. There is no middle point. Either you are affecting them, or they are affecting you. And the Prophet ﷺ said that you will be raised on the Day of Judgment with your friends. So be careful about who you choose as your close friend. 
putting that into context, uh, the requirement for us with regards to our declaration of faith is not only to accept Allah as our Lord and Muhammad as the last messenger of Allah, of Allah to mankind, but to live in accordance with that acceptance, to live a life in accordance with the Sharia, the wish and the will of Allah for man. Uh, from the sisters, since we have no questions from the brothers, uh, question the winter. Is it permissible to do it as three units together, or do we have to do it as two and one? Uh, we may do it as two units followed by one unit, or to do it as three continuous units. We have a choice either way. It could be three, it could also be five, or seven, nine, you know. The Prophet did it in other combinations besides three continuous units. Question with regards to this? Oh, that the, um, because the Prophet had also pointed out that it <coughs> should not resemble the Maghrib prayer, which is where we have the sitting in the second unit before standing for the third, that the way in which witr is done or should be done with three units is that we don't sit after the second, but we continue and do the sitting in the third. Um, 
this is asking for clarification. According to the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad he would make wudu after washing private parts and then have a shower or ghusl. If we are not allowed to touch the private parts after wudu, does it mean that we must also continue the shower or ghusl without touching these parts? Uh, when it says not allowed, meaning that if one touches one's private parts after having made wudu, then our wudu is nullified. It's not to say it is prohibited to touch your private parts. If you are using the bathroom or cleaning yourself, of course, this stuff should be perfectly allowed, permissible. But the method of, of washing ourselves, the ghusl, this complete bath, is preferably in the format of washing our privates first, then making wudu, and allowing the water to come over the whole of our body, in order as not to touch our private parts after having made wudu, and then nullify that wudu that we had made. Uh, what this means is that when we wash our private parts, we can do the, you know, what we, what we now, how we now bathe commonly, we soap our whole selves down with a rag and etc. We just, that, the washing of the private parts, that whole washing can be included at that point. Then we wash off the soap, etc. You know, washing ourselves down. Then we make wudu. After making wudu, then we stand finally under the shower or pour water over ourselves or go into a clean bath of water because actually for us bathing uh, though for us coming from a western background we bathe in a tub we may bathe in a tub where we fill the tub with water and we take a bath in there actually from Islamic perspective if we're making a bath for purification you know the ghusl that we shouldn't make a bath in standing water it should be flowing water because you know if you're washing from yourself certain uh, Impurities for you to then go and lie down back in these impurities after washing yourself. You're not serving the purpose. So the water should be flowing water, preferably under a shower or pouring the water over oneself. How would we wash off the soap and shampoo from all parts of the body? As I mentioned, that could be done initially with the um, washing of the private parts question, is the ghusl the same as a shower? Not necessarily. The ghusl from Janaba, that is where we are, you know, we have uh, the requirements for having passed uh, sperm or having an orgasm uh, for women or coming out of a state of menses. Uh, this ghusl should involve washing the private parts as, and then followed by wudu and everything else. But if it is just a straight ghusl we're making, the washing of the, the, the making of the wudu here may not be a requirement. You can put some water in our mouth and nose and just take the shower. So it could be very similar to a shower. But in the case of the bath from Janaba, that is where we have been sexually defiled, or a woman coming out of menses, then it should include the wudu and the washing of the privates. Would it break the wudu if the husband or wife saw the husband or wife naked unintentionally or if the daughter sees her mother without clothes accidentally. No, this in no way breaks wudu. I mean, this is, for one, things which happen accidentally according to Islamic law we're not held to account for. And in any case, if a person is seen naked 
even if it wasn't by accident, if somebody, if a child deliberately came in the bathroom or deliberately peeked on you, uh, this does not affect your wudu. This is the things which break the state of wudu or the state of tahara, purification, are specifically identified by the Prophet That is, passing urine or feces, passing wind, touching one's private, going to sleep, deep sleep, uh, and also eating camel's meat. You know, these are the main things. Uh, also, of course, sexual intercourse, uh, which requires the ghusl. The others require just the wudu. No, this is cancelled. Uh, if a person just, you know, you're, you are, um, do, uh, you could say in a sort of a state of um, between sleep and being awake where you are resting but you are aware of what is happening around you, uh, this form does not necessarily, would not necessarily break your wudu. That may happen whilst you're in that state because sometimes you hear yourself snoring, right? But now when you fall into the state of sleep where you have lost consciousness, somebody wakes you up and says, you know, wake up. You say, I wasn't asleep. <laughs> you, you really, you're, you're gone now. When you have fallen into that state, then it is required of you to make wudu afterwards. Why? Not because sleep itself breaks your state of purity, but because when you're in a state of sleep, the chances of you passing wind without your knowledge are very great. That is, that is the point. This is why that sleep will requires of you then to make wudu. Because if you pass wind in that state, you would not know. So, there is a requirement for making wudu. Well, some scholars have held that, you know, if you are sitting in the upright position, you know, if you, even if you fall into deep sleep, as long as you're not leaning against anything, that this, uh, if in that case, it will not break your state of wudu. But as some people have also pointed out, they have observed people sitting in this state, in deep sleep, passing wind, and not knowing it. So, uh, since the, the reason for for this uh, prohibition or this requirement of making wudu uh, even for, for sleep is because of the fact that this may take place without our knowledge, the safer position would be to make wudu if we're fallen into deep sleep. That is definitely the safer and I feel the more accurate uh, position. No, the, the eating, why we have to make wudu after eating camel's meat? Um, it is not haram, the eating of camel's meat is not haram. Uh, in fact, um, the Prophet Muhammad ate it and it's available here, we are allowed to eat it. Now, the camel has a particular status which is different from the other permissible animals to us. The Prophet allowed us to pray in the places that where the sheep, the cows, the goats, where they are held, you know, the pen, sheep pen, we're allowed to pray. The companions asked, 
Can we pray in the places where the sheep are gathered? You know, where you pen them, where you hold them together, right? Or corral, hold the cows. He said, yeah. And they asked, well, can we pray in the place where the camels are? He said, no. And he mentioned that because, because there is an evil jinn, shaitan, that is linked with the camel. I mean, how it is, of course, you see, we're talking now about the unseen. Because we don't see the jinn that's with the camel, but the Prophet of has informed us. And he didn't know except that Allah informed him. So there is something about the camel. I mean, some people have looked into the nature of the camel also. If we look in terms of the animals that we're allowed to eat, we see that these, generally speaking, are the calm animals. The cows, the sheep, the goats. But those which are carnivorous, the tiger, the lion, were prohibited to eat. And the camel seems to be sort of halfway there. Camel, you now for those people, although we might see him, he seems to be a relatively calm individual, those people, you know, the Bedouins will tell you about the camel, very, very, very vicious. You know, you crack your neck with his, uh, with his jaws. You know, you see, they have to be very careful in handling him. So, Allah knows that there may be something about his nature which uh, we are protected from by making wudu. This is, again, this is speculation, of course, you know. This isn't fact, I'm not giving you any fatwa or anything, it doesn't matter, right? I'm just relaying to you what, you know, has been said, people's reflection. But fundamentally, uh, we have been informed. This, some people have tried to explain this away. You will find in some uh, books, uh, and I, I've seen this, you know, written, where a story was given that on one occasion, the Prophet ﷺ was sitting with a group of his companions, and one of them, uh, who had eaten camel's meat, broke wind whilst they were sitting there. So, in order not to embarrass this person, he just said, whoever has eaten camel's meat should make wudu. Right? So the man got up and made wudu. But this is not true. It's a false story. It's commonly related, and I've seen it in Arab news in, re in reference to this question, which was raised in the column of uh, Islamic Perspective. He mentioned it in there, but it's false. Not authentic at all. Not an authentic tradition at all. It's clear there is something different about the camel. For Jews, the eating of the camel was prohibited. If you go back into the Torah, it is a prohibited animal. So some scholars have also suggested that it is sort of in, in deference to that earlier revelation. Allah has, has, has made things a little easier for us who are allowed to eat the camel, but in recognition of its earlier prohibition, we make wudu from eating it. This is an opinion. You know, Allah knows. But the fundamental principle is that the Prophet clearly stated that for those people who have eaten camel's meat, it is required for them to make wudu if they had wudu previously. He said eating camel's meat. The meat is different from the milk. No. No, well, this is again, you know, beyond your knowledge, Allah accepts it. You know, what happens outside of your control, outside of your knowledge, 
this you're not held to account for. So you made salah believing that what you ate was okay and you know, uh, then you're not, uh, your salah would be acceptable. Well, you know, there are different um, prohibitions concerning uh, the horse, the uh, domesticated horse, or is it domesticated horse? It is domesticated donkey. Yeah, I've forgotten exactly what it is concerning the horse, but uh, some aspect, uh, somebody recall with regards to the horse exactly what is the ruling? I know the domesticated donkey you're not allowed to eat, but the wild donkey you may eat. Uh, can somebody just research it and bring for us next week anyway uh, exactly what the ruling is concerning the horse? No, 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 it's nothing about the chest and the horse. I mean, it's, it's clear, uh, there's a clear uh, allowance or disallowance based on whether the animal is domesticated or, or not domesticated. Somebody anyway can research it you know, and uh, bring it back. Can somebody take responsibility for that next week? Okay, brother, Dalla. Not It is maybe certain parts, you know, yeah, I mean certain parts are eaten like the dog, right, the lizard, uh, this dog, I mean they commonly they will eat the tail part, right, not the main part of the body, yeah. so it may vary, you know, and uh, the frog for example, well, there are many other areas, the frog is allowable, people usually eat the legs of the frog and not the rest of the body. No, no, there's no prohibition on amphibians, clearly the frog, you can read it in Sahih Bukhari, when the companions were saying, you know, uh, uh, we'd eat the frog and if it was available, we'd serve it to our families. There's no prohibition on amphibians. Frog is allowed. Frog is not a carnivorous animal per se. Alligators are carnivorous. Drying yourself? Okay, our brother's question is that if a person completes his ghusl and is now drying himself off, if he touches his private parts using a towel, would this be considered uh, touching the private parts? No. Uh, if there is something between your hand and the private parts, then it's not considered the touching which breaks wudu, but it is skin on skin. You know, uh, if this happens, then your wudu is broken. Uh, question concerning, is there any chance, uh, women in Salah, any chance at all of making Salah without wearing socks, usually extreme heat, if the woman's dress is down to her ankle, what about in her own house? Well, the traditions concerning covering the tops of the feet are very clear. So if a woman um, is having a dress made, she should make it going down to the top of her feet, finish if she decides to wear it to her ankle, then she should wear something covering the tops of her feet. Socks. So, uh, whether it is in her own home, or whether it is, you know, in a masjid, uh, the tops of her feet 
you know, are considered a part of her aura or the parts of the body which should be covered in prayer as well as outside of prayer. If she is outside of prayer, she's in the presence of uh, people whom she may marry. Inside her home, if she wears, uh, you know, anything, uh, even if she wore a miniskirt and it's her husband, you know, it's no harm. But if she's uh, in the presence of people, you know, other males and females, males who she could marry, then she should uh, cover herself uh, up to the top of her feet. Question? Animals which eat fish, like the deer, you mean? Yeah. yeah, these are carnivorous animals, killing with the teeth. The carnivorous meaning that it is meat eating, you know, because uh, in, in Arabic the term uh, for the flesh of the fish is the same as the term for the flesh of land animals. It's lahm. No, no, the, the ruling concerning the fish, our brother is asking, what about the fish that eat other fish? Well, the ruling concerning the fish or animals of the sea, animals which live their lives, all their lives in the sea, is different from the ruling concerning land animals, completely different. Because we're not allowed to eat an animal on the land which dies of itself. You see a cow falls down, he dies, you can't take him and cook him and eat him, this is haram. But if you find a fish floating on top of the water, you can eat you know, the animals which die in the sea, the animals of the sea which die in the sea are edible, you're allowed to eat them. On the land animals, you must sacrifice the animal, you must cut the neck, let the blood flow. But you're not required to cut the neck, you know, the neck of a fish, you know, before eating, cooking it, right? You know, it's a whole different uh, set of rulings concerning the fish. The fishes die of themselves after you've caught them, pull them out of the water, they die of themselves, you cook them and eat them. So, and this is based on the fact that uh, once some companions came to the Prophet and asked him whether it was allowable for them to make wudu from seawater. You know, because they traveled, they were fishermen, they were travel on the sea. They asked whether it was permissible for them to, to make wudu from seawater because seawater seemed to be different in quality than fresh water. It makes you feel sticky and it's salty and all these things. So he replied to them that not only can they make wudu from seawater, but that the seawater being pure, it actually makes even the, the dead that die in it pure. The animals of the sea and the dead which die in it are all pure. So all of the rulings concerning the land animals are not applicable to the sea animals. The sea is a special uh, category of itself. <coughs> Right. Our brother is mentioning a narration mentioned in uh, Sahih Muslim, where some of the companions had come across uh, a large fish, whether it was a whale or not, we are not certain, but it was a very large fish which was on the shore, um, and they, it was dead obviously on the seashore. They took parts of it, ate, and brought some back with them, told the Prophet about it, and gave him some, and he ate of it. Okay, uh, if there are no other questions. Is there any question?
A uh, question of nudity between a husband and wife. Uh, fundamentally, there is no prohibition. You know, between a man and his wife, there is no prohibition. There are some narrations which are weak, not authentic. You know, uh, which I know in the Hanafi school, they are very strict about it. And uh, in fact, so much so that people commonly will take baths with clothes on. You know, I know the women, they have a special bathing costume which they use for taking a shower. They will not take off all their clothes to take a bath even. But this is actually based on traditions which are not authentic and um, uh, it is allowable for a man to be uh, naked in the presence of his wife and vice versa. But in general, let me just add that to just be walking around the house, you know, in a state of nudity, uh, in Islam it's just it's considered really not uh, appropriate, you know. Uh, it's not really appropriate that, um, you know, one as a norm walking around one's house, one should have some clothing on, right? Uh, the question of making wudu in a state of nudity, yes, it is permissible. Brother Muslim. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Is there a parallel? the conditions of the Muslims today. Well, I think this may be a big, big uh, discussion. You know. uh, we could say briefly though that um, uh, in the past there have been times when the Muslim Ummah has come under attack, various segments of the Ummah and the Ummah as a whole have not come to their aid and uh, sections of the Ummah were destroyed as in the case of Spain uh, certain uh, parts of um, Syria and Turkey etc. during the time of the Tatars and during the periods of colonialization of the colonization of the British European powers in the Muslim world, we had sections of the Ummah were chopped off uh, without the rest of the Ummah coming to their aid. And uh, Russia, the southern Russian states, these were engulfed by the Russian uh, uh, Republic and the Ummah virtually did not come to their aid. So there were times in the past where circumstances similar to these, you know, have occurred. And it is very important for us, I think what our brother probably was pointing at that we should, in looking at our past history, try to learn lessons from them so that we don't repeat the mistakes of those in the past. That when the Ummah is under attack, we should rise to meet that attack. We should revive the spirit of jihad in defense of Islam and Ummah. Uh, 
The Yusuf Ali translation of the Quran. We know there's many mistakes in it. Uh, it has been revised. Huh? There are many mistakes, many mistakes, mostly in the commentary. In the main text of the Quran, basically, very few mistakes. So the main mistakes are in the commentary, his, his views, you know, as he explained in the very beginning of the book, if you read carefully, he says, you know, he has read the, the opinions, the commentaries of the early scholars, but, you know, where he didn't feel they were appropriate, he took his own decisions, you know. So he basically, it was from his own, uh, from himself. The, the, the commentary itself was from himself and because of that there are many errors. He was affected by the, the thoughts uh, of the time and at the same time we also know that he was from a deviant background uh, known as the Buhra. The Buhra is a, a one of the deviant uh, branches of the Shia and um, the Shia, especially, this is the Ismaili, the, da, the Daudi Ismaili group. Uh, they uh, stress very strongly symbolism, and this is why you find in his, in his commentary it is full from beginning to end with symbolism. He's always taking these verses from the Quran and, and interpreting and giving the symbolic meanings. This is other than the issues of Aqidah, but this is a tendency throughout his his interpretations to to turn things into symbolism and so one has to be very careful uh, the revision which was printed by the Malik Fahad or King Fahad Press you know has remedied many of those mistakes however they have not caught all there is a recent um, translation which is available on the market now the Mohsin Khan Hilali translation which had been around for some time but had more or less gone out of print it has been reprinted uh, recently here in Riyadh, uh, or actually I think in Lebanon and brought in. And, uh, it, you know, it has uh, been revised by Mohsen Khan himself because Dr. Hilali is dead now. May Allah uh, protect him and have mercy on his soul. Um, and this is now available uh, in the Batha Jaliyat office. Uh, what price did they sell it to you for, brother? 50 riyals? Actually, this is an exorbitant price. The price is supposed to be 25 riyals for the duat. This is 25 riyals for the duat, and 35 riyals for you know anybody who just is not involved particularly in dawah but just needs the copy. You know, uh, it is 35 riyals. You can get this from Dar es Salaam bookstore uh, uh, printing. Uh, I can give you their phone number and uh, address there on the Bath Street. Afterwards, you can pick it up there. That is the official price that it should be sold at between 25 riyals and 35 riyals. 50 riyals is, is an exaggerated price. Yes, I'm recommending this over the Yusuf Ali translation uh, because it also has in its commentary um, the uh, verse, uh, sorry, uh, hadith from Sahih Bukhari which are related to the various verses. So, you know, it, it gives you even a, um, a better uh, understanding and also his, this translation was, was based on the, um, the tafsir of Ibn Kathir and At-Tabari. You know, the, the, the choice of 
expression or explanation in the translation itself was in is in accordance with the commentary, the mo one of the most classical commentaries of the Quran, which is that of Ibn Kathir. It's called the Noble Quran. I can't remember. Yeah, it's, called it's called the Noble, called the Noble Quran. Quran. Yes. Okay. Now, how about this uh, new translation of Ibn Kathir? He has a, a new edition. The revised one coming out of the King Fahd. Uh, no, not the one from the Deen. Out of the Amana Press. This one, it is no better than the revised one from Medina. The I heard a lot of negative uh, comments from the very serious side itself was from Medina. They said they spent 10 years on translation and the commentary is more well. But the one from Medina wasn't, they didn't, it was a revision still of Yusuf Ali. It wasn't a new translation. You know, and it wasn't really ten continuous years. What happened is that you know they formed one committee and they started working on it, and then the committee broke up and they formed another committee. So you know, over the years, many different people have worked on it. They reached a certain point, and some people went back to the beginning again. And you know, as a, it was really, it was done in a very unprofessional way. Pixel, Marmaduke Pixel's uh, uh, translation. This is uh, better than Yusuf Ali in the sense that it doesn't have some of those uh, symbolic and mis misinterpretations in the commentary. But the problem is that, to a large degree, the average English reader of the Quran does need a commentary. And that's why, you know, a lot of people, in spite of knowing what was in Yusuf Ali, when there was nothing else to recommend with a commentary, they were obliged to recommend Yusuf Ali. Because there are many places in the Quran, you know, for a ring English reader where he does need clarification. And it doesn't come in pixels. Would you recommend the uh, Medina? Yeah, I did. The, the Medina Yusuf Ali, I would say, you know, uh, it's better if, if we, not, uh, we don't have access or it can be used along with the uh, Novo Quran, the Mohsin Khan recent revision translation. Talking about commentary, and of course the uh, Said Qutb has been translated just uh, with the Amma, which is the, the last bit. But it says that the, in the front of the battle that there was a plan to translate the whole of uh, Said Qutb. I understand this brother with the Said Qutb. I did not find that. Adil Salahi. Yeah, the, um, the translation of Said Qutb's uh, Fidil al Quran, in the shade of the Quran. Uh, this, this mentioned in the beginning of it that they had the plan to do the whole. That was when the book first came out back in the 70s. You know, and we still haven't seen anything more than the 30th part. Uh, other parts, uh, you know, sections, we can see there's translation going on because it has been appearing in, uh, in the uh, Arab news. You know, other parts have been regularly, but it has not been printed. We also have the complete tafsir of um, uh, Maududi uh, called um, The Meaning of the Quran. Uh, this is available mainly in Pakistan. They're selling it here quite expensive with uh, uh, one of the bookstores in Olaya, uh, but it can be gotten from Pakistan for about 200 riyals. Here they're selling it here for about 400 plus riyals. Although, you know, still Maududi uh, Tafsir, I mean, it, it has certain weaknesses in terms of the use of hadiths which are not authentic, quite a few in there. So one has to be careful, you know.
uh, in some of the conclusions drawn from uh, hadiths which are not uh, reliable. Well, as I said, if you concentrate on the main text of the Yusuf Ali Quran, the commentary, be careful. Just have to be careful. You may read it, you see, because the point is, uh, you know, we are intelligent people, right? You know, I cannot say, it's like telling you, for example, a book written by a Christian, don't read it because it's a Christian. No, no, you can read it. I mean, but just have to be careful. You know, if a person is uh, talking about Islam, for example, you have Orientalists have written books about Islam. You know, I would not say, don't read these books, no. You know, I would say, concentrate on learning and understanding your Islam first before going on to other sources which may be, you know, questionable. But uh, at the same time, uh, if one is careful, you know, one keeps an open mind, you know, doesn't just uh, accept things blindly, then uh, one may read even, uh, you know, Yusuf Ali or, you know, books from any source. But we just have to be careful. We don't just read it and then take this whatever it says there as being fact and, you know, we're going to start quoting it. If we find something which appears unusual, then we need to check it out first. Check with some other sources. Finally, is this in fact true? Then if it is confirmed to us, then we may, you know, convey it to others. Uh, spending money and going for Umrah at this time. Spending money and going for Umrah. Is it better to go on Umrah or to give it to needy Muslims around the world? Well, there is reward in both. Um, you have to look at yourself. Maybe you need Umrah more than, you know, you know, if you feel, I mean, you're feeling in the spiritual lows, you know, and you know, Umrah, you know, can help to bring you up and get you back on the path, then maybe you need the Umrah better, you know, more. You know, so, I think uh, if you've made, you know, if, if you find you've made a number of Umrahs before in the past, then, you know, there is not a particular need for you in the sense you don't feel as a direct need, that uh, to give that money to those who are in need, other Muslims are in need, I mean, this may be uh, more noble. It may be more rewarding. Okay. One more question. Who is this? <laughs> the speaking during Juma is haram. Uh, to to talk whilst the khutbah is going on has been strictly prohibited by the Prophet to such a degree that he said that one who you know who talks during the, uh, the Juma you know in the end it is as if he has no Juma he has destroyed his Juma one who plays with stones pebbles you know distracts himself with cracking his knuckles or reading his watch or whatever you know, such a person, you know, is 
affecting and destroying his Juma. You know? And one who says to his companion, be quiet, though his companion is talking and what he's doing is wrong, even this act in and of itself is also prohibited. You know? So though you might be trying to do something good because of the fact that if all of us are given the permission to start to tell everybody around us be quiet and so and so, then it could turn the Juma into a very noisy affair even though you know, people are you know, doing or commanding the good, but it would destroy the whole uh, spirit of the Juma and, and prevent many people from being able to benefit from it. Inshallah, we'll uh, close the session now. It's 2 o'clock. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. And uh, we ask Allah to help us to reflect on the Sharia, Islam, the ease that is in Islam, to find that ease so that we can live Islam as it was meant to be lived. Amen.